This episode of Diffusion Science Radio is supported by you, the listener. When you visit audibletrial.com science to try Audible free for 30 days, go to www.audibletrial.com science to receive your free audiobook today. Or make a donation directly on www.diffusionradio.com. The International Science Radio Show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro-seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, carotenoids. Why vegetables are good for you. But first up, here's the news. Spying for science. Harvard University administrators have admitted to spying on students and faculty without telling them for science. The subject was questioned publicly at the Harvard Faculty of Arts and Sciences meeting on the 4th of November by Professor Harry Lewis. Researchers at the Harvard Initiative for Learning and Teaching had secretly taken photos to measure patterns of student attendance at lectures, without speaking to the students or lecturers in what would seem to be a major violation of ethics. It's a basic principle of research involving human beings that researchers have informed consent from the experimental subjects and that the experimental protocol be approved in advance. This is normally policed by an ethics committee. In this case, the head of the study, Vice Provost Peter Boll, said the protocol was sent to Harvard's Committee on the Use of Human Subjects in Research, who concluded that the study wasn't doing research with human subjects. As the students weren't considered human, or the study wasn't considered research, the study's protocol wasn't reviewed by the full Committee for Ethics. Now, I don't know about you, but if I had applied to a committee on the use of human subjects in research, and they told me not to worry, not because my protocol didn't harm anyone, but because my subjects didn't count as human, or because my study wasn't really research, I wouldn't simply say, "Uh uh-huh, and then go on and plant the secret cameras. I'd question that decision. You ask for ethics oversight because it's necessary to make sure the right thing is done and because it's the law. The administration of Harvard University's Faculty of Arts and Science got in trouble last year for spying on email. So spying and privacy are very sensitive subjects at Harvard University. In 2013, faculty administrators were investigating allegations of students cheating and one of their email memos was leaked to Crimson, the student newspaper. It was embarrassing because it advised how student-athletes could get special treatment by asking for a leave of absence. No students were identified, but publishing the email violated confidentiality of the administrative board. The students accused of cheating were represented by staff before the administrative board. These staff were the resident deans. This means that the resident dean's emails are full of communications with the accused students about their defence before the administrative board. The investigators on the administrative board secretly read the private emails of the resident deans to try and find out who had leaked the memo. They violated privacy to protect 
confidentiality. The investigators successfully identified the resident dean who forwarded the email and found that it had been an accident. So there was no crime against confidentiality to punish. The 16 resident deans didn't find out that their email had been spied on until after the fact was reported in the Boston Globe. The fact that the resident deans weren't told that their email had been searched was a breach of trust and their expectations of privacy under the rules. The students who had emailed the resident deans about their defence could also have seen it as a breach of trust. Imagine if the courts could secretly tap the communications of defence lawyers with their clients. What trust would anyone have in the system? A fair hearing for the students was at risk. The invasion of privacy also breached the privacy rules. As it happens, the faculty, staff and student email privacy policies were written by the same Professor Harry Lewis who now raised the camera spying issue. The privacy policy for faculty staff says that they can be searched by the administration only under extraordinary circumstances and that in such cases, staff must receive written notice that their email will be read and if it's not possible beforehand, then they must be notified as soon as possible afterwards. The student email privacy policy says that student emails are private and can only be read when there's a legal investigation that requires such action by legal authorities. Students need to be able to email their professors and deans about anything and everything that concerns them, with the confidence that their emails will be private. The relationship between the resident deans and the students was damaged. Harvard broke their own email privacy rules to pursue a confidentiality leak about students who were accused of breaking the rules. Professor Lewis wrote that after four decades, he'd reversed his previous security arrangements by moving most of his personal email away from his faculty account to a Google email account, despite his distrust of Google. You would expect, after all the public apologies and cries of never again in the email issue, that the faculty administrators would be more careful around privacy issues. However, Vice Provost of the Harvard Initiative for Learning and Teaching, Professor Peter Boll, had heard anecdotes that students weren't attending classes as much as they used to, so he wanted to find out if it was true, and whether this meant the traditional lecture format needed to be changed to be made more interesting. So in three lecture halls, he secretly installed cameras in the classrooms that snapped an image of the seats every minute. Ten courses were spied on. The images were then processed to determine whether the seats were empty or filled. The quantities were calculated for each lecture. After the data was collected and presented at a teaching and learning conference, he called in two of the junior professors and told them what he'd done. He asked their opinion of how they could improve their class's attendance. Neither the rest of the teachers nor any of the students had been formally informed that they were secretly photographed in the classroom. They found out in the student newspaper after this meeting. Other professors at the November 4th faculty meeting with Boll and Lewis pointed out that teachers know a great deal about the strengths and weaknesses of their lecture courses, so that if the senior administrative officials wished to learn more about the issues, it would be more productive to discuss the matter with the faculty instead of looking at them from outside. Professor Lewis has already pioneered some changes away from traditional lectures. His students watch a recording of his lecture before class, and then in the classroom identify and discuss the parts that were difficult to understand, which means more students attend. About 2,000 students have been photographed. The faculty has previously trumpeted a decision that the classrooms were a special forum where the teacher sets the agenda. So many people at the meeting were understandably unhappy that this wasn't respected. Professor Harry Lewis pointed out that just because technology can be used to answer a question doesn't mean 
It should be. If you watch people electronically and don't tell them ahead of time, you should tell them afterwards. Professor Lewis continued, None of us, students or faculty, want to be treated like inmates of some academic panopticon, never knowing for sure whether we are being or have been under scrutiny while we're going about our daily business of teaching and learning. He finished by asking the university president to promise to formally inform all of the students and staff that had been secretly photographed. Vice Provost Peter Boll assured the meeting that photos had been destroyed after the data was analysed. This leaves unanswered, did the Committee for the Use of Human Subjects in Research consider the photo surveillance wasn't really research or that the students and lecturers weren't really human? You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Dr Chris Casanelli is a researcher at the Hawkesbury Institute for the Environment at the University of Western Sydney. He's leading the Environmental Epigenetics Laboratory, investigating how plants will respond to future climate change and environmental impacts. Inspiring Australia brought him to Ultima Library, where he gave a talk about why vegetables are good for us, and in particular, the carotenoids they have. I'll be playing excerpts from Chris's talk, interleave with my interview. Chris began by explaining what carotenoids are. Carotenoids are everywhere in nature. They are the red, orange and yellow pigmentations you see in flowers, your fruit and vegetables, and also in the autumn leaves. So the leaves are green in the spring and the summer because it's a chlorophyll which is the major pigmentation of plants that masks all the orange and yellow and red colors but in autumn the chlorophyll degrades and that's when we see the beautiful colors coming out in the leaves in autumn and that's the carotenoids and the interesting thing about carotenoids is life would not exist without them they're important for behavior reproduction and survival so I've been researching for the last seven years now how carotenoids are important for uh, human nutrition and more specifically plant development. And what we've found is a bit of a breakthrough is that the uh, carotenoids show a very interesting layer of regulation in that the, beyond the genetic code there is a, a layer above it called the epigenetic layer and this is, uh, affects how certain genes are turned off and on in the plant and specifically genes that encoding for carotenoid biosynthetic enzymes that alter the composition of carotenoids in the plant, thereby affecting the major carotenoids that are accumulating in plant tissues, such as fruits, as well as in our vegetables. And these stresses can cause modifications to the layer above the DNA code. That is how the DNA is packaged within its chromosomes. And essentially, when you think about a chromosome, everyone's sort of seen a chromosome before in TV or you've seen it in a textbook. That is so much DNA packaged in there. Think about how does that get read? How does the cell, the genetic code, how does it go in there and re recognize what's going to be turned on or off? So epigenetics is about changing how that packaging occurs. And there's no change in the sequence. It can be stable through cell division. And you can actually get it inherited from one generation to the next. So it's a very responsive state. So the phenotype of an organism is determined by its environment. So the carotenoids are influencing 
the expression of the genes, which include the expression of the genes that make the carotenoids, so it's a feedback loop. That's right, there's a lot of feedback mechanisms in, within the plant, so essentially the carotenoid pathway needs to be very finely tuned to the environment, so as you're getting more or less of one particular metabolite, they need to feed back and modify gene expression and how much of the enzymes present so that you can have the right flow of carotenoids through the pathway down to the major sinks, which are the roots and the fruits and the leaves, so that we get the right processes occurring, such as photosynthesis and the ability of compounds to be made that are important in terms of developmental processes, such as how many shoot branches will be formed and uh, the ripening of fruits and these other processes that all depend upon compounds such as carotenoids. These genes turn on or off and that produces more proteins and that affects the production of secondary metabolic pathways such as the production of carotenoids. This can have a major effect upon plant development, feeds back to affect the phenotype of the plant, whether you have a plant that looks like this guy or looks like this one here, and of course that has a major interaction with the community, the insects and everything around it as well. So there's a big feedback effect here and it's very important we look at all of those aspects. And they're also very important in human nutrition. That's right, carotenoids are very important in human nutrition. So as an example, carotenoids can prevent age-related macular degeneration of the eye, which is a very uh, important disease in the elderly, as well as they prevent blindness because vitamin A is a carotenoid-derived compound and humans do not cannot make carotenoids, so they have to eat their fruits and their vegetables in order to get a dietary amount of carotenoids to make vitamin A and if you don't have enough vitamin A in your diet that can promote blindness and this is very critical in third world countries where they don't have a lot of carotenoids in their diet they don't have access to those fruits and vegetables and so blindness is a very major problem there due to vitamin A deficiency. And lutein limits age-related macular degeneration that's a major problem in the elderly it's the leading cause of blindness in the elderly and it's a loss of central vision and if you look at the retina here, they can be exposed to high levels of light and there's free radicals. And what the carotenoids do is they can disperse those free radicals and protect it. So the macula has the highest levels of carotenoids in the body. And as you can see, it's these yellow pigment here in the layer at the bottom layer of the macula here that's rich in compounds such as lutein and zeaxanthin, both which are carotenoids. But yet there's over grating, more than 15 carotenoids in the bloodstream floating around inside a human. So these pigments are very important and a lot of breeding in plants is focused on trying to increase the production of lutein and zeaxanthin. Now there's recommended lutein levels and there's room for improvement. So there's a suggestion that maybe one milligram per day of lutein might be enough to sustain. But you can eat one cup of broccoli and get three milligrams. So if you eat a lot of vegetables you're going to get more than what you need is the end of the message. Now these two twins are identical. These two boys are my sons quite a few years ago and I had a lot of trouble and I got in trouble a lot of times because I couldn't pick who was who, who was Torin and who was Robert. Fortunately enough, one of the boys had some moles in a particular place on his buttock and when I was changing the nappy, <laughs> I was able to distinguish who was who. As they've grown older, they're still looking the same. If you were to take one twin and put them in a third world country with no carotenoids and the other in a country full of carotenoids, they would not look the same after five to ten years. There would be major differences in their phenotypes. That's how important it is. Now, that's speculation because I haven't done that experiment. <laughs> but in the agouti mice, they do that exact same experiment. There is a, a locus called the agouti locus that can be, the DNA can be methylated. 
and it depends on the nutrition. So you can get mice that have a, a nice sort of light um, yellow fur color or dark colored mice. Genetically, these are the same mice. Genetically, these are the same boys. But these mice, depending on the diet of the mother, you can get a whole different color of spectrum. And that's because there's a change in the epigenetic layer and the control of gene expression. So you have to watch what you eat, you have to watch when you're pregnant, watch what your environment around you, and even for two years after development, after the child's been born, your genetic epigenetic code can still perhaps be changed. Once you get to an age of 18, it doesn't really matter anymore so much. But scientists will prove me wrong, and I'm sure many people will question me on that one too. There's ways of adding carotenoids to foods. That's right. So we can take, for example, rice, which is, doesn't have a lot of nutrition in it because it's white. It doesn't have any carotenoids because carotenoids are the coloured compounds that are out there that you see in your yellow fruits and orange, veg, uh, orange, yellow and orange fruits and vegetables. And we can take rice and we can put carotenoid biosynthetic genes in there using genetic technology. And then you can have what we call golden rice. And now that has got far more nutrition in it because it's rich in beta-carotene and beta-carotene is used to make vitamin A in animals and therefore golden rice can be a solution to blindness in third world countries. We can improve carotenoid composition in our breads, in our rice, and in foods that aren't enriched with it. We can develop molecular markers that breeders can use to select for traits, to select for those carotenoid genes or the regulatory processes so we can enhance the production of these carotenoids in foods that normally are not selected for. We can also look for new regulators that increase the composition of carotenoids such as lutein. Carotenoids also have an influence on human development. That's right. So it's, carotenoids um, uh, have a major effect in humans in terms of behaviour, but more so in animals rather than humans. So a lot of the birds out there, there's a lot of uh, carotenoids are very important in terms of their behaviour and their reproduction, as well as their mating preferences. So often an, a bird, for example, that can a male bird that can find a uh, diet rich in grains that are uh, very highly enriched in carotenoids, that male bird will show that colour in its feathers and that will make it more attractive to a bird and more successful in its reproduction. Your crustaceans, while they look bluey green in the water, when you cook them, they're orange. Now the flamingo loves crustaceans. So the flamingo that has a higher diet or can find the yummy crayfish will be more pink and show those colours. Now the male in the bird world is often a little bit more prettier than the female. And there's a reason for that, is that the male needs to show off those colours. It needs to show those orange, yellow and red colours that it gets from finding a foraging ground rich in grains or crustaceans that have lots of carotenoids in them. And that male then will be able to attract that female and will be more successful for reproduction. And the example I always like to give is a man with a Ferrari and a suit <laughs> is more likely to get a female than a man who's dressed in a pair of thongs. Okay, that's just the way it's going to be. Scientific. <laughs> Scientific, that's right. And carotenoids are not made by animals, so animals have to eat them to get them. You can't make carotenoids yourself, but we eat them. Cows eat them, all animals eat them. But there are examples in nature, for example, aphids, that have been able to take up the genes from plants, and aphids can actually make carotenoids. And that was a very interesting science paper and a big discovery only about three or four years ago. Can you tell me a little bit about the research that you're doing with biosynthesis of carotenoids? So we're very interested in understanding what regulates carotenoid biosynthesis in plants. 
Ultimately, if we can understand these regulatory processes, we can then develop molecular markers to select for these traits and breed for plants that are more enriched in these carotenoids. So in looking for these regulatory processes, one of the big findings we found is that there is a chromatin-modifying enzyme, which is an enzyme that can open up the uh, chromatin around a gene and make it more accessible to turn the, that the expression of that gene on. And this is a major finding because it implicates the modification of the, the way in which DNA is packaged within a cell with memory forming processes and that is how the environment can influence how that DNA is packaged and therefore pass that memory process from cell to cell and hence if we can understand that how that regulation occurs we can then better tune plants for changes in the environment. So this pathway here is a pathway that I designed that was molded one day when I was sitting in a brewery and I thought to myself look at those fats, look at all those pipes Imagine if carotenoids could move through them. And that's what scientists do. We sit in a pub and we start picking up weird things like that. And so I decided, well, here, in here goes the hops. They go through. We have little taps here that will turn on, on and off what happens inside there. And at the end of the day, we're going to have barrels. And the barrels would be the beer normally. But in this case, the barrels are lutein, representing one of the major carotenoids in plants. The other barrel represents beta-carotene, which is what's been enhanced in the golden rice that I talked about earlier. And these compounds, some of these compounds like beta-carotene can use, be used to make signaling compounds that could allow communication between the organelles in the cell, as well as making hormones that change shoot branching and, and the ability to provide resistance to drought and other stresses. And it's these regulatory steps that I'm most interested in. How, when you turn off some of these enzymes or genes, how that affects flux through the pathway. Do we get more in this barrel of beta-carotene? and less of lutein or more of lutein. If we can understand these regulatory steps and how when we turn off one tap, it can feed back and control an upstream step or feed back and control a downstream step through negative and positive feedback, we can then work with plants and breeders to tell them what they need to select for to increase more of our favorite compounds that we want to see to help out humans, nutrition, and especially in third world countries where there's a limitation of these compounds. Plants, some plants, such as our little famous Aridopsis model weed that we like to use in our labs and a lot of people think has no use out there, but experimentally and in terms of epigenetics, it has been amazing and learning so much about science. And this plant will not flower in the spring unless it perceives a prolonged cold period over the winter. It must see that long, prolonged winter. Why? Because it's a weed, it must flower early, well before any of the grasses and all the other trees start to take over. It needs to get in there and complete its reproductive cycle. It perceives as long cold, it goes from vegetative to reproductive, and it does this by altering its epigenetic layer and hence the expression of genes. And what we end up seeing in our mutants is that in the carotenoid somrase mutant that we have here, we see changes in development where the plant looks nothing like the wild type plant. We get changes in the structure of the flowers where we don't see sepals and petals. We get anthers that are shrunken and deformed. So these mutants that are affecting carotenoid composition are affecting development as well. And they're doing this by regulating hormones that are involved in abiotic stress, such as, such as abscisic acid, which is very important in drought responses, as well as hormones such as strigolactones, which are very important in controlling the number of shoot branches a plant's going to have. And 
What we're looking for is because there's a tap at this step here that regulates flux through the pathway, when we have this epigenetically modifying enzyme controlling cardi, so if we turn this process off, we get these new molecules produced that you don't normally see in plants. And we're now hunting for novel signals. And perhaps these processes here and the fact that a chromatin modifying epigenetic regulator of carotenoid biosynthesis has been identified Perhaps these are implications that these compounds are involved in memory forming processes in plants. So we're looking for novel signals that may be controlled in response to environment, environmental signals and hopefully by understanding these processes, the end of the result is <laughs> we will be able to have better vegetables for you. And the end message is you are what you eat. And you were pointing out that carrots weren't orange originally, that we made them that way. That's right. The original carrots that were out there in, in nature before they'll become domesticated were white. And humans went through and have selected for the orange and the yellow and uh, carrots um, as a process because they look, they're probably tastier. I don't actually know. I've never eaten a white carrot, but definitely because of their colour, they've been very quite attractive in that regard. But obviously the orange carrots are going to be richer in beta carotene and hence why they say eat more carrots and it's good for your eyes because you're going to have a higher amount of vitamin A in those orange carrots than you would have in a white carrot. And if people are concerned that they don't have enough carotenoids, what should they do? Well, they should eat more vegetables. Well, Chris, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much as well. That was Chris Casanelli, head of the Environmental Epigenetics Laboratory at the University of Western Sydney, talking about carotenoids. You can hear the full unedited talk on the Diffusion Radio Carotenoid episode page, along with Vanessa Moss talking about cosmic timescales and the audience's question and answers at the end. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to join us? We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. You can send your contributions, opinions, congratulations, standing ovations, gasps of amazement and helpful suggestions to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please do send me an email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. We only have eight ratings on iTunes. Checking production was Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the Community Radio Network, including two Triple H in Hornsby, Karingai, two NVR in Nambucca Valley, two X in Canberra, and three MBR in Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station, and also on astronomy.fm. You can now hear Diffusion on Stitcher, radio on demand and on the go. Download the free app from Stitcher.net and review Diffusion. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And check the website for links and photos about this week's show. I'm still in the process of putting together a crowdfunding campaign for Diffusion. I'm hoping it's only a few more weeks for me to shoot the video and put it up live. I'm looking at rewards for people who fund the show. Would you make a donation in return for hearing your voice on Diffusion? Send an email to science at diffusionradio.com and let me know what you think. Or make a donation directly by using the donation PayPal button on www.diffusionradio.com.
I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. And to take us out, here's Tom Lehrer with Fight Fiercely Harvard. Fight Fiercely Harvard, fight, 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 demonstrate to them our skill. Albeit they possess the might, nonetheless we have the will. How we will celebrate our victory, we shall invite the whole team up for tea. How jolly. Hurl that spheroid down the field and fight, fight, fight. Fight fiercely, Harvard. Fight, fight, fight. Impress them with our prowess. Do. All fellas, do not let the crimson down. Be of stout heart and true. Come on, chaps. Fight for Harvard's glorious name. Won't it be peachy if we win the game? Oh, goody. Let's try not to injure them. But fight, fight, fight. Let's not be rough, though. Fight, fight, fight. And do fight fiercely. Fight, fight, fight.